Lindsay Osborne teaching us this morning, and um, it's a joy. I got to hear last night, um, and it, you're just going to be so blessed. Lindsay has been at Bethlehem all her whole life, um, grew up here. Her lovely mother is here front and center. Um, and she is married to Zach for 20 years, and they have three lovely girls. And um, I'm going to maybe let her fill you in on any more about herself, but I do want you to come up here so I can pray for you. I will say, I love, as I've gotten to know Lindsay, her heart for God's word um, just overflows in everything she says, in every conversation that you have, and I just love that about her. So what she's doing here is not a separate little piece of her life over here, a compartment. This is her life, um, and she's sharing it with us, and I'm grateful. Father, I thank you so much for Lindsay and for all the ways that you have blessed her and you have guided her and you have opened her eyes to see that you are good and your word is good and is full of treasure for us. And I thank you that you are good and sovereign and ordain all the little chaoses that have happened in her life over the past days and especially the past 12 hours. And I just pray that you will sustain her, that you will give her clarity of thought and um, help her to be a channel for your message for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning. Today we're looking at David's prayer of confession from Psalm 51. If you weren't here, I said in our panel discussion that you should come anyways, and I'm so glad you did. I hope you'll find it surprisingly encouraging, as I did. We'll start this morning with the background of David's life, because context is important to help us understand any text. Now, I'm a firstborn, natural rule follower, but if I'm being honest, I'd sort of prefer to ignore the context on this one. <laughs> it's a story I have often wished I could skip over when I'm reading through the Bible with my girls. But easy to read is apparently not what we need. God in his wisdom has given us more. Before he wrote Psalm 51, David found incredible favor with God. He went from insignificant shepherd to nationally recognized war hero, but, and, uh, and then king over God's chosen people. It was not an easy rise to power, but God was gracious to David. Up until this point, David is positively inspiring to read about. But the Bible is not a book of human heroes to emulate. If we read fully, God does not leave us that option. He tells us the truth. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The context of our psalm soberly illustrates this truth. One spring, David did not go out to war with his men. He stayed home and lusted after another man's wife. He abused his power and position so that he could sleep with her. When David found out she was pregnant, he tried to get Bathsheba's husband Uriah back home to spend the night with her so there would be an explanation for the baby. <clears throat> when that didn't work, David made sure Uriah was killed in battle. Then he brought Bathsheba to his own place. Maybe he thought he had covered up his sin. Maybe <clears throat> he thought he had sort of made it better by manipulating who was living where. But God, in his mercy, 
did not leave David alone in his sin. Instead, God sent a prophet named Nathan to David with a story. <clears throat> Nathan described the heart-wrenching injustice in which a rich man stole the beloved pet lamb of a poor man just to supplement a feast. David became angry when he heard about such callous selfishness and justly called out a death sentence for the man. Nathan agreed and drew David's attention to the real injustice, David's own sin. Then he explained the serious consequences. This is where our psalm picks up. Psalm 51 is a prayer reflecting David's heart in response to the truth that God revealed. David had been found out. There was no more running from his sin. He needed to confess and repent. Dear sisters, this starting point is a good reminder to us that we have a similar problem. Maybe our sin is not the same. Maybe it seems less serious because at least we didn't murder someone. But our sin is also known. We cannot hide it or make it right by manipulating situations around us. God has set consequences for our sin too. Romans 6.23 is clear. The wages of sin is death. Our sin separates us from God for all of eternity unless we confess our sin and trust Jesus. Psalm 51 is a helpful pattern for the confession of sin. So with that in mind, let's begin. The intro reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. I hope at this point, before the first verse has been read, the strangeness of Psalm 51 starts to dawn on you. David sinned, spent a bunch of time and energy trying to cover it up, and then decided to memorialize it forever at the beginning of the psalm. Why? Why write a song and remind everyone of his adultery and murder? Why rehearse his worst moments? It's nearly inexplicable. But there is an explanation. I think after this confrontation, David understood God's goodness in a new way. As God's inspired author, David wanted to help his people know that God's mercy is available for all who confess and repent. So, we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Read along with me. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In the whole psalm, David made no fewer than 19 requests of the Lord. I was encouraged by that number. A friend pointed out that this psalm is nearly all requests. Yet David was not rebuked by God for his neediness. Rather, God preserved this psalm as a pattern for his people. In these first lines, he asked God to have mercy, but he added two important phrases. David asked for mercy according to God's divine character. David dared to approach God in his mess of sin because he knew God's heart toward his children. David asked for mercy according to God's steadfast love, a consistent, persevering, faithful love. He also asked for a removal of sins according to abundant mercy. In this text, the word mercy means compassion and forgiveness for someone who deserves punishment. And notice, it's not just enough to cover it mercy, but lots of it, abundant mercy. In Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. He said, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and forgiveness, or in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You can hear there, centuries earlier, that connection between God's merciful, steadfast love and his forgiveness of sin. Which brings us, I think, to a good point of reflection. How do you picture God in the face of your sin? Is he a hands-on-his-hips parent, giving an exasperated sigh because you were naughty? Do you put off confession because you imagine an angry glare awaits you? The Bible paints a different picture. For those in his family, bought by his son's death, God is the prodigal's father, waiting with open arms to welcome you home. God's heart toward the confessing sinner is merciful. The Bible does speak about God's anger on sin. I don't want to gloss over that. It is the most terrifying thing to be under God's judgment. But that judgment is only for those who haven't come to him admitting their need for forgiveness. Romans 8.1 gives us confidence that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. So, why should you take time to study Psalm 51 and follow this example? Proverbs 28.13 shows us the effect of confession. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confession is our path to mercy. So I pray God gives you a fresh realization that he is a God of abundant mercy and steadfast love. Recognize your need for forgiveness and turn toward his mercy so that you will have the great joy of personally knowing God's heart. David knew he needed mercy and forgiveness, and we do too. That's an uncomfortable realization, but God is merciful and loving. He covered it. Surely we can move on now, right? Well, not according to this pattern. <clears throat> this is when I see my need for the Bible to shape my prayers. God knows it is helpful for us to spend time understanding the problem. In the second section, I think David has two big ideas, which he states in parallels, poetically emphasizing his main point. In both of them, David talks about sin, transgression, and iniquity. These words function as synonyms, so I want to take a minute to define them. I didn't even attempt to come up with my own definition. I just went straight to a heavy hitter. In Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, he said, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. The Greek and Hebrew words for sin means to miss the mark, which helps us understand that sin is any way in which we do not live up to God's good and right expectations. The first big idea shows up in verses 3 and 5, where David shows us that we should acknowledge our sin. In verse 3, David told God that he recognized his own rebellion against God's standards. He said, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. He was no longer pretending it wasn't a big deal. God had helped him take an honest look at his heart. He had seen that his sin was a problem, and that problem was not going away. Verse 5 expands this acknowledgement of sin a bit further. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not only had he sinned, 
David admitted that he was sinful. He was a sinner by nature. This isn't a statement about the circumstances of his conception. In sin and in iniquity describe his heart condition. It points to his sinful inclinations, present from the very beginning of his life. I think God gave us this section because he knows we have multiple problems with our perception of sin. We don't easily recognize it. We don't think it's a big deal. We underestimate its effects in our lives and others. We are so familiar with it that we forget it's deadly. This pattern helps us align our thinking with reality. The act of confession brings sin into clearer light. We feel no need for God's help if we haven't admitted our problem. So confession sets us up to recognize our need. The second big idea of this section shows up in verses 4 and 6, where David referenced God's holiness to sin, or holiness to understand sin. He acknowledged that since God is the one who defines evil, there is never a place to blame him for sin. Verse 4 requires us to think carefully. It says, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. Now, clearly he has hurt others, and not just a little bit either. It was rape to satisfy a whim, and murder to save his reputation. It seems almost cruel to say that sin was only against God. So how does this help us? Why would he speak this way? I think the answer is that David understood something about sin that we tend to miss. Sin is first and foremost an offense against God. Having been given the honor of bearing God's image, it is incredibly wicked of us to do something out of line with his will. It's damnable, not mostly for the effects that sin creates around us, but because it scorns the infinitely good and holy God who made us and gave us life and every good gift. Jesus used the same kind of contrast in the New Testament when he said in Luke 14, 26 through 27, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These verses do not tell us we should hate our neighbor. Their point is that our love for family should look like hatred relative to our love for the Lord. The same type of contrast is used in this verse 4. The statement was written to jolt us out of incorrect proportion in our thinking. As self-centered creatures, we tend to think of human consequences first. We focus on the people and the effects that we can see. We have a constant problem of neglecting to keep God in the center of our vision. David did not remember God's goodness to him. He did not live to honor God that spring. That is where all the human trouble started. Most English Bible translations include the words, so that, to connect the two halves of verse 4. The second part reads, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In verse 4, David acknowledges that his sin is most offensive to God, so that everyone is clear that God is not represented in David's behavior. In referencing these sins, 2 Samuel 11:27 says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David did not get a pass on sin because he was God's chosen king. God did not say, 
Well, you've had some hard years, and you've been pretty faithful, so we'll let it go this time. He didn't. David wanted to make it clear that God's justice remained uncompromised. God was offended by this sin more than any human. For those who have been greatly sinned against, verse 4 is not a statement that implies your suffering is insignificant. Instead, it is a reminder that we worship a God who is just and blameless. His indignation over sin is far bigger than yours. Next, David expanded on the idea of God's holiness by showing his desire for our hearts. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So, God desires that we love and believe truth. God is pleased with holy hearts. Not only that, but David knows that holy hearts are not man-made. God must instruct him so that he does not continue to live by foolishness and lies. For us, this portion has two applications. First, we should be quick to acknowledge our sin, both the specific outworkings and the heart from which it came. Second, we should orient ourselves on God's holiness. Do all that you can to immerse yourself in his word so that you are reminded of his character and his holy standards. The next section centers around a request and a goal. David asked for cleansing and purifying, a changed heart. He desired a restored relationship with God. The sin had been exposed. David saw things as they really were, but he could not fix it. He couldn't even cover it up. Yet David knew he couldn't be in God's holy presence without a clean heart. Back in the introduction of the psalm, David remembered that God made a way for sinners to be with him. In this section, David focused on God's work to bring sinners back to right relationship with him. Verse 7 contains a beautiful reference to an Old Testament event. It says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. To modern ears, singing about hyssop is sort of weird. To Israelite ears, this line held a history of God's covenant love. In Exodus, hyssop was the plant that Israelites were told to use to paint the lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintel. The blood was a sign that God's judgment should pass over the Israelites. Hebrews mentions that hyssop was used to apply blood in other Old Testament purification ceremonies too. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The lamb died so Israel could live. Innocent blood bought forgiveness so the people could be in God's presence. So for us, women of the 20th century, hyssop points to the cleansing blood of Jesus, our own history of God's love. Jesus is the solution to the problem of sin. Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Jesus' blood, mercifully poured out at the cross, is what removes the stubborn stain of sin. He can make us holy and allow us to be with God. How could a just God forgive David? Because David had faith in God's power and willingness to forgive. 
How can a just God forgive us? Because we trust in God's love and provision through Jesus' blood. Jesus took the punishment we deserve. We could savor this a long time, and it would be good for our souls, but God's abundant mercy has given us more. Verse 8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. This most likely indicates that David had been pretty miserable. He had been cut off from joy because of his sin. Most of us enter into sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. Confession, then, is not just a path to mercy and cleansing, but also a road to a greater and lasting joy. In verse 9, David continues, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Praise be to Jesus. We have a Savior who can blot out iniquities and a God who is willing to hide his face from our sins. When I think back to the little years with my three girls, addressing sin was never my favorite part of a day. <laughs> but I still treasure an unexpected sweetness from the process. After the sin had been called out and the discipline given, I'd take them on my lap and pray for Jesus to help them follow him. Sorry, this is my favorite. <laughs> Sometimes, <clears throat> even after a relatively long time, they wouldn't stop crying. I would ask about it, and most often they'd just lean into my chest with a fresh burst of tears. They had trouble putting it into words. I guessed they felt overwhelmed by the shame and misery of their sin. It was such a joy to be able to hug them and assure them that Jesus really could remove it. Most often, I quoted part of Psalm 103, verse 2 to them, and said, Honey, you don't need to keep crying about this. God said that he has put our sins as far as the east is from the west because of Jesus. Then the tears would stop. That same truth is carried here. Isn't it the best? God has erased sins. There is no more record of those criminal charges. God does the same for you, if you ask him. Not only that, but with a pattern like this, we know he wants you to ask him. He welcomes the request. Sometimes I also feel overwhelmed at the confession of sin because I feel powerless to change. But that is wrong thinking. I cannot do enough to make myself right with God. I have no power to make my heart less twisted and dark. Maybe the same happens for you. Psalm 51 is good news for us. God has the power to change sin and or to, to cancel sin and the ability to change our hearts. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. God inspired this prayer because he can make a clean heart and renew a right spirit. Yes, there were consequences for David's sin, but God did not only aim to balance the scales of justice. He pursued change in David's heart. He sent a friend with a story about a pet lamb to move David toward confession. Why does David want a clean heart? What motivates his confession? It's not mainly so that he doesn't have to face consequences in the world around him. Before we read the next verse, I want to remind you again of David's backstory. Before David, there had been another king in Israel, one who repeatedly disobeyed God. Right after God's spirit rushed on David as he was anointed king, 1 Samuel 6.14 tells us, that God's spirit departed from Saul. This is probably what David had in mind when he prayed verse 11. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. God's presence was precious to him. God's Spirit had empowered him when he was anointed to be king. David knew his sin had separated him from God, so he pleaded with God to be near him. He begged for the privilege to live and work by the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 12, David said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here, David pleaded again for restoration in his most important relationship. He knew there would be missing joy and strength if God did not work in his heart. It was and is God's work to restore and uphold. God paid a high price to make you right with him. He sent his beloved son to die in your place if you trust him. So, remind yourself before the Lord that fellowship with him is the center of your joy. If you feel like you have broken bones and a wrong spirit, plead for restoration. This is the pattern God set for us. In the final section, we hear David's resolve. He had been forgiven and restored to right relationship with the Lord. Out of an overflow of gratitude, David made some resolutions. At the beginning, I summarized David's good news as God's mercy is available for all who confess and repent. So far, we've seen confession, but I think the next part is a reflection of repentance or turning away from sin. David wanted to leave that sin behind, so he planned to get busy obeying God. We see evidence of his heart change in his plan for action. Verse 13 says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. The very writing of this psalm is a fulfillment of this resolve for David. Mercy, forgiveness, and cleansing from sin are the best things that can happen. No one just sits on their most exciting news. If we are excited about something, we find a way to talk about it. It bubbles up in our speech. David expected God to turn other sinners back to their Heavenly Father as they heard his testimony. Maybe he will call you to write a song about God's mercy, but definitely he has called you to point others to Jesus. Verse 14 and 15 use repeated ideas again for emphasis. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. I've labeled this section David's resolve, but notice whose work is requested in these verses. God delivered from blood guilt. Next, David asked God to open his lips and give him words to declare God's holiness. Now, lest you think our praise to God and then obedience to him, to his commands, is the deal that God worked out in exchange for the forgiveness of sins, David clarifies the issue. Verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. God does not want penance or some system in which we attempt to pay for our sins. We can't do that. Repentance is not paying back. It is a new path, a different way of living. What does God want then? Verse 17 tells us, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The word broken is used twice here. 
which points toward our neediness. <laughs> we see that God must do the work of putting things right, cleansing us and making us whole. Verse 17 calls us to remember that we can do nothing good on our own. It means we take the posture of the tax collector, with eyes cast down, beating his breast, as Jesus described him in Luke 18, 13. We humbly acknowledge our need for God's mercy and help. Verse 18 starts with another request of the Lord. David said, Do good to Zion in your pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. In this verse, I think David helps us see something a bit foreign to those of us living in a more individualistic culture. He recognized the communal influence of a personal relationship with God. The consequences for David's sin did not stop with Uriah and Bathsheba. Many had seen his example and been pressured to participate in his sin. As the king, his influence was far-reaching. Later in the Bible, we get a direct reference to this same phenomenon. 1 Kings 14.16 says that God judged Israel because of the sins of King Jeroboam, which he sinned and made Israel to sin. The connection is not explicitly drawn here, but I do think it's implied. David's sin was bad for the whole nation. David knew that all of Jerusalem needed God's favor and blessing. The second part of the request is build up the walls of Jerusalem. Walls were a protective measure for the city. Here, David admitted that his sin had put Jerusalem in a vulnerable position. He wanted God to protect Jerusalem from more of the bad effects of his sin. He wanted God's mercy for others, too. It would be nice to think that my sin only affects me, but it's just not true. The Bible is full of warnings about the corrupting influence of sin around us, which means, certainly, our sin has the same effect on others. This is worth some personal reflection. Do you have unconfessed sin? How is it affecting those around you? Your sin will always touch others' lives. Pray that God will bless and protect those who are affected by your sin. So finally, we arrive at verse 19. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, didn't he just say that God would not delight in sacrifice and burnt offering? What's happened here? Notice the first word, then. It's in all the English translations I could find, and it seems to signal a change. <clears throat> the, what's happened between verses six and 19, 16 and 19 is that David's heart has changed. The sacrifices and burnt offerings were only pleasing if they came from a repentant heart. This is a pattern we see all through the Bible. Obedience to God has never been able to make us right with God. The order is important. First, we are forgiven and made clean. Then, we obey from a grateful, trusting heart. There are a thousand opportunities to follow the pattern of David's resolutions here. We should similarly resolve with prayers for his help to tell others about God's salvation. No one is outside the need to be reminded of God's goodness through Jesus. We don't have the Old Testament requirements for sacrifices and burnt offerings, but we are still commanded to worship God and follow Jesus' pattern of sacrificial love for others. Obedience is the joyful fruit of a repentant heart. We are called to live with the aim of glorifying him. 
So, we've seen the pattern in Psalm 51. Does it mean that we should always confess our sin this way? Well, I can tell you I've found it helpful to internalize the pattern. If you are fighting a long-standing sin that you've nurtured and tried to cover up, deep reflection and long prayer over God's word will probably be necessary for a changed heart, restored joy, and obedient life. What about a sin you quickly recognize? I suspect God is delighted to work in the woman who pleads under her breath, Father, I need your help. Forgive me. I want to be right with you. Change my heart and help me to obey you. I'm going to close today with a story from Dane Ortland's wonderful little book, Gentle and Lowly. <clears throat> it says, A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem, and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He is independently wealthy and has no need of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. Finally, a few brave men step forward to receive the care being freely provided. What does the doctor feel? Joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the whole reason he came. How much more if the diseased are not strangers, but his own family? So with us, and so with Christ. So this is the heart of your Heavenly Father. I want to encourage you not to refuse the help of Jesus, your Savior. Sisters, because of Jesus, God's mercy is available to all who confess and repent. His heart toward them is steadfast love and abundant mercy. When you confess, he hears you. Let's pray. God, we need your mercy. Forgive us for our sins. Change our hearts and help us to follow your ways. Give us the joy of right relationship with you. As we discuss, let our lips overflow with the good news of your salvation. Thank you for your merciful heart, ready to hear our prayers of confession. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.